All right, we are back. We were talking in the first segment about the lieutenant governor's office, which has, of course, been vacant for quite a long while, being that the lieutenant governor is Gavin Newsom, a man whom (laughs) the same thing might be said as was once said about baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn, Bowie Kuhn, which was that an empty taxi pulled up and Bowie Kuhn got out. At any rate, being lieutenant governor sometimes uh, gives you a leg up for becoming the next governor of California. Although sometimes, if one is perceived as being a sufficient lightweight, it might not make the grade. This did happen many years back in the 80s. In fact, when Mike Curb, the then lieutenant governor, whose main claim to fame was being, I believe, the lead singer of the Mike Curb group, well, his run at the governorship got derailed by George Duke Majin. I don't want to get into George Duke Majin's legacy today. But I do want to talk about one of California's biggest political fixers. The man who is a wire puller, a guy who gets things done by, well, from, a, from our perspective, we'd have to say, seems to be from just buying legislators wholesale. Maybe I shouldn't say legislators so much as people who hold office. People in, well, city council seats, planning commission seats, etc. The guy we're talking about tried to propel one of his stooges into the governorship some years ago. The stooge in question was named Phil Angelides, a man about whom it's been said has all the charisma of an undertaker. And Radio Parallax takes firm issue with that summary. One of my dad's closest personal friends was one of our local undertakers in the East Bay area. And I will say that he had infinitely more charisma than Phil Angelides. One Radio Parallax correspondent said that after he met Phil Angelides, he wanted to take a shower. But Angelides in Sacramento is recognized as being the stooge of the wire puller named Angelo Sakopoulos. At one point, some years back, many years back, the Sacramento Bee published a list of who was financing the campaigns for the city council races in Sacramento, and it appeared that Angelo was covering his bets. He's the kind of guy when President Clinton came to California, he stayed with Angelo. He's the guy that he's the kind of guy that hosts the mayor Kevin Johnson's wedding reception at his house. And currently, he's the kind of guy who wants to run his daughter to become California's next lieutenant governor. Yes, Eleni Kulanakis of San Francisco, despite her lack of elected office experience, is apparently the stronger of two weak choices to become California's next lieutenant governor. In this case, it's a Democrat versus a Democrat runoff coming up in November. Kulanakis is the daughter noted the East Bay Times, a politically connected wealthy developer, Angelo Sakopoulos. She was president of her family's real estate development company for more than a decade before President Obama appointed her ambassador to Hungary, where she served for three and a half years. The East Bay Times noted that when they interviewed her last May, she clearly had some studying to do on key policy issues, especially regarding higher education, but they noted she was articulate and given in-depth thought to state issues. It's good that candidates have given in-depth thought to state issues, don't you think? And we're pretty confident that her ambassadorial experience will make receptions in the lieutenant governor's office really well managed. At any rate, she's the odds-on favorite to become California's next lieutenant governor and see what she can do to further advance the causes of her old man. 
We have to note horribly that apparently her opponent in the race, State Senator Ed Hernandez of West Covina, is even less distinguished. He was described by the East Bay Times editorial piece as proving himself to be simply a mouthpiece for public employee labor unions. And even worse, to seal the opposition of the paper, they note that the Southern California lawmaker is a strong supporter of Governor Jerry Brown's misguided Twin Tunnels project set up to siphon yet more Delta water south. The press had a lot to say about Jerry Brown's idiotic uh, plan. Well, it's, maybe idiotic isn't the right word. It is not being guided by stupidity so much as avarice. But uh, this editorial piece, I think, needs to be quoted from extensively, so let us do so. The East Bay Times headline was, Block Governor Brown's Outrageous Delta Tunnels Water Grab. And the editorial was as follows. Jerry Brown's administration is now trying to jam through a political deal that would enable construction of his $17 billion Delta Twin Tunnels project, the biggest public works project in state history, without the approval of the state legislature, the voters, or ratepayers who would be footing the bill. Governor Brown's State Department of Water Resources suddenly plans to extend state water project contracts with amendments for another 50 years. 50 years, they note with an exclamation point. That would allow water contractors backing the Twin Tunnels Project to lock in water contracts for the Delta Tunnels Project before Brown leaves office at the end of this year. The only way to stop it, noted the editorial last month, is if the Assembly and State Senate's Joint Legislative Budget Committee refuses to hold a procedural hearing on the contracts that were currently scheduled for August 14th. The paper said, mind you, the Joint Committee has no approval authority, but its refusal to hold the required hearing could delay the process until after the November gubernatorial election, and that's what the committee must do. And at this point, I have to pause and sort of break down the fourth wall a little bit, dear listener, to let you know that we sometimes record this program in stages. When I uttered that last sentence about taking a look, that was actually several days ago. Realizing that I had to go check on the internet, Mr. Millen and I had other things to do, well, we broke off recording for a few days. But I'm glad we did. Because in going to check what happened on that date, August 14th, we discovered something remarkable. In fact, let's go to another editorial in the, in this case, San Jose Mercury News, titled, Stop Brown's Sleazy Last-Minute Delta Tunnels Bid. Let me quote from it. This comes from the August 29th edition. In what would be the sleaziest maneuver of Jerry Brown's tenure, a legislative committee suddenly has rescheduled a hearing for Thursday morning that would allow the state to move forward with the governor's $19.9 billion Delta Tunnels water grab without a vote of the legislature, without a vote of the people, without legislative oversight. Appalling doesn't begin to describe this end run of ratepayers, voters, and their elected representatives on the next to the last day of the legislative session. Assembly Speaker Dennis Rendon, Democrat of Lakewood, and State Senate President Tony Atkins, Democrat of San Diego, had canceled the original August 14th hearing after this newspaper and others raised objections. Rendon and Atkins deserve to be labeled gutless if they now allow this charade to proceed. 
Now, I wish the editors wouldn't hold back. They go on. The governor has been determined to make the massive water conveyance project part of his legacy, no matter the negative impact on the health of the Delta, which supplies two-thirds of the state's fresh water supply. Brown will get his way if the Assembly and Senate's Joint Legislative Budget Committee follows through with its plan to hold the 8 a.m. session. Meaning that as some of you listeners hear this, the session will probably be ongoing. Noted the Mercury, it's a procedural hearing that would allow the State Department of Water Resources to extend the state water project contracts for another 50 years. Under state law, all the Joint Committee has to do is meet and listen. If they do, that would allow DWR to lock in water contracts for the Delta Tunnels project before Brown leaves office at the end of the year. That, in turn, would allow Southern California's Metropolitan Water District room to move forward with its desire to snag as much water as possible from the Delta. Noted the Mercury, the absurdity of extending the contracts is that the governor and the DWR don't know how much water would be available if the tunnels are built, nor do they have information on the tunnel's financing or what the cost allocation would be for the water districts that might be forced to pay the bills. What is known is that MET, the largest water district in the United States, is pushing the tunnel's project forward despite the opposition of its two largest members, the Los Angeles Water District and the San Diego County Water Authority. The LA and San Diego districts oppose the project because it doesn't pencil out. The State Water Resources Control Board and scientists studying the Delta have made it clear that more water needs to flow through the Delta towards San Francisco Bay to preserve the Delta's health. As if Thursday's hearing isn't bad enough, Assemblyman Richard Bloom, Democrat from Santa Monica, is pushing for a gut and amend bill, AB 2649, that would further circumvent the public's ability to monitor water contracts. Bloom's bill would reduce the period for public notification and submittal of final language for future contracts from 60 days to 10. Major water projects affecting the entire state demand maximum transparency through review processes and a full vote of the legislature, if not all California voters. In their final paragraph, they say extending the state water contracts for 50 years without a single vote from the people or the people's representatives stains the reputation of all involved, including the governor. They gave the phone numbers to call Rendon and Atkins to demand that they cancel Thursday's hearing. But alas, by the time you hear this, dear listener, that will be, uh, that'll be too late. This does remind me of what Ronald Reagan once said about politicians and babies, that they needed to be changed often and for the same reason. And yeah, I know a lot of you don't think too highly of our former governor and president, Ronald Reagan, but you know, he, he did have quite a few good quips along the way. You know, now that I think about it, if I had to go out on a camping trip out in the woods, sitting by the campfire with Ronald Reagan would probably have been a hoot. Sitting by the campfire with Jerry Brown would probably be the equivalent of, I don't know, a three-hour Gilligan's Island-a-thon. Of course, if we're going to bash people for being somber, we should note, as many have, that the President of the United States may be the only major politician in the country that appears to have no, no sense of humor. In your personal lives, do you know anybody that has no sense of humor, dear listener? There was one guy recently who was in the news that co-workers noted never laughed, never was jovial, never told a joke. That would be Joseph D'Angelo, 
currently accused of being the Golden State Killer. I suppose it's a bit of a cheap shot to compare these two personalities. But uh, we'll stand by the viewpoint that if you have no sense of humor, well, there's, there's, there's something wrong. You know, which reminds me, it's been a long time since we did a joke of the day on Radio Parallax, and there's something wrong with that. So how about this one? Standing around the grave of a departed friend are an anthropologist, a doctor, and a lawyer. When the eulogies end, the anthropologist suggests that they all put some money in the coffin. Money, as is the practice of some ancient tribes that he has been studying. The anthropologist then pulls out a $100 bill, and he lovingly deposits it inside the coffin. Not to be outdone, the doctor also pulls out a $100 bill, and he too deposits it in the coffin. The lawyer then writes a check for $300, puts it in the coffin, and removes the $200 in cash. To that, we owe the book Skid Marks, Common Jokes About Lawyers. Since we're adding a bit of levity to the program, let's just do a couple more, shall we? Man goes to a lawyer and asks what the least expensive fee was. The lawyer replies, $50 for three questions. Stunned, the man asks, isn't that a lot of money for three questions? Yes, said the lawyer. And what is your final question? I'm sure you all recall this one, what's black and brown and looks good on a lawyer. The answer, of course, is a Doberman Pinscher. And finally, we'll close with one that comes from a lawyer. In this case, that noted lawyer and future politician, Abraham Lincoln who I believe once asked, how many legs does a sheep have if you call a tail a leg? I believe the person Lincoln posed that question to said, well, then five. To which Lincoln said, no, four. Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it one. And although we have to admit it isn't all that funny of a joke, it's just, you know, it's Abraham Lincoln. I must say, I remember with great fondness, every time Johnny Carson would do a Lincoln joke, it would bomb. He would inevitably look out in the audience and go, it's a Lincoln joke. They always bomb. I've got a couple of weak magazines here so we could do lots of current events, but, you know, let's, let's not. Let's save that for next week's show or whenever we... Do a show next, which may be next week, maybe the week after. I don't know. We're going to keep them coming. Both Mr. Miller and I apologize for the fact that we have been somewhat irregular this summer. Let's instead talk about William Goldman, a man that this correspondent has considered asking for an interview for this program. Last time I checked, Goldman is still alive and still working. And man, I got to think about this. The man can write. My good friend Elise mentioned to me recently that she was reading The Princess Bride for her book club. It is, of course, a much-beloved book and a much-beloved movie. Goldman wrote the book, and he wrote the screenplay. 
Elise was reviewing with me some of the funnier moments in the book and how it differed a bit from the movie. When I asked if she'd read Goldman's nonfiction work, Adventures in the Screen Trade, she had not. Luckily, I retained a copy, pulled it off the shelf, and started thumbing through it, and, and just reminded myself of how good this guy is at wordsmithing. I was looking for some references in it to The Princess Bride, but alas, he wrote it before he did the book and screenplay. But he did write a continuation of Adventures in the Screen Trade, titled Which Lie Did I Tell? Subtitled More Adventures in the Screen Trade. And damn it, it's so good, I think I need to quote from it, just for the heck of it. To quote from the introduction by William Goldman of Which Lie Did I Tell? This book began a decade ago because of one single moment that happened at Oberlin College. One of the salvations of my life is that I went to Oberlin, a great school, if you don't mind the weather, and if you realize that it's okay to be just a little bit strange. Anyway, I was back in Ohio, and one afternoon I met with a bunch of student writers to answer their questions about Hollywood. I remember the moment so clearly. This girl stood up, slender, wearing red, so obviously bright and intense. And before she spoke, I realized whatever she was about to say mattered. She was leaning in toward me, and she was almost trembling when she spoke. It was with such clarity and power. These were her words. Mr. Goldman, do you always begin your second theme by page 17? I was so stunned. The question would not stop echoing inside me. Mr. Goldman, Mr. Goldman, do you always begin your second theme by page 17? Because you see, I didn't know what a second theme was. I literally did not know what language she was speaking. But she had this nugget, this bit of data, and she was going to build her church on it. And it would not stand. Her church would crumble the moment weight was applied. There are, scattered throughout this book, sidebars that deal with specific questions. I wish I'd had a sidebar for that girl in red. She made me realize, truly she did, that I would have to write another book about screenwriting. Because movies are not about second themes, or about dialogue, or pretty stars. Because if screenplays are structure, and they are, then movies are story. And this is a book about storytelling on film. It is also about the screenwriter's life. Has to be. You meet people in this business, and one thing you must know is that just about everyone you come in contact with seems shockingly normal. Executives, producers, directors, stars. Do not be fooled. Since movies succeed by word of mouth, something you cannot manufacture, everyone in the business is constantly in fear of losing their spot by the fire. Since they have no idea what got them there in the first place, this all makes for a certain lunacy and insecurity. Everyone assumes, correctly, that being writers, we are already loony and insecure. He goes on to note, storytellers tell lies. We must. Story ideas surround us, but they need shading, shaping, climaxes, beginnings. That's our job. What we must try and learn is which are the best lies, best in the sense of helpful. When we try and tell our stories, we all need help. I hope there's some here for you. 
Let's devote most of that to his brief chapter on The Princess Bride. Here is how the novel The Princess Bride happened. I love telling stories to my daughters. When they were small, I would go into their room, and stories would just be there. Anyone who knows me knows that I don't think much of what I do is very terrific, but my God, I was wonderful those early evenings. Stuff just came. I knew that because the girls would sneak out and tell their mother, and she would say to me, write it down, write it down. And I told her I didn't need to. I was on such a hot streak, I knew I'd remember. All gone, of course, and all the stuff I've done over almost 45 years of storytelling, more than anything, I wish I had those moments back. Doesn't matter, really. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. At any rate, I went on my way to Magic Town around 1970, referring to Hollywood, and I said to them both, Jenny, then seven, and Susanna, then four, I'll write you a story. What do you want it to be about? One of them said, princesses, and the other one said, brides. Then that will be the title, I told them, and so it has remained. Since it was to be a kid's saga, the early names were silly names, Buttercup, Humperdink. He notes at this point that he had trouble writing anything in Southern California. Noting that it's my fault, I find it just, well, too wonderful. There was a time before the recent madness when people actually thought of L.A. as being that wonderful. Wandering now, I suppose nothing surprises me more than Los Angeles becoming a place people leave. For the first half century of my life, it was, he says in his cornball way as he can muster, the American dream. Walls closing in, just drive to the Western Ocean and you'll be fine. For me, and you'll be fine. For me, abrasiveness helps, so I've always written in New York. There is a story of Laurence Olivier after a particularly remarkable performance of Othello. Maggie Smith, his Desdemona, knocked in his dressing room door as she was on her way out the theater and saw him staring at the wall holding a tumbler of whiskey. She told him his work that night was magic. And he said in, I suspect, tears and despair, I know it was, and I don't know how I did it. This relates to me in but one way. The Princess Bride was the only novel of mine I really like, and I don't know how I did it. He goes on to say, I remember doing the first chapter of how Buttercup became the most beautiful woman in the world and how in the second chapter, which is a rather unflattering intro to Prince Humperdick, the animal killer, then I went dry. The nightmare of all of us who put words on paper. I stormed around the city, wild with ineptitude, because you see, all these moments had already happened in my head. The sword fight in the Clips of Insanity, for example. Inigo and his quest for the six-fingered man, for example. Fezzik and Rhymes. I didn't know how to get to them, had no way to string them together, and I could feel the window of creativity starting to close. We move on, we move on, it's okay, we'll find other stories to tell. But I didn't want to tell other stories, I wanted to tell this one, and I couldn't find a way. I suppose the de most desperate I've ever been was when I was 24 and done with grad school and done with the army and about to become an accursed copywriter in some ad agency in Chicago when I wrote my first novel, The Temple of Gold. I wrote it in three weeks. It was a couple of hundred pages long, and I'd never written anything more than 30. I remember thinking when I was on page 75 or 100 or 150, I don't know where I am. All I know is I've never been here before. But the book got published, and suddenly I was what I'd always dreamt of but never thought I'd be, a writer. Then I got the idea of the good parts. My book would be an abridgment of an earlier book written by S. Morgenstern. Morgenstern's book 
would be the one my father had read to him by his father when he was sick. In the movie, it's the grandfather reading it to me, and from which my father read me only the good parts because he didn't want to bore me, which meant I could jump whenever I wanted. I was free. So I did the opening chapter, which explains how I got sick and my father started reading to me, and then I started to fly. For the only time, I was happy with what I was doing. You can't know what that means if, most of your life, you haven't been stuck in your pit, locked forever with your own limitations, unable to tap the wonderful stuff that lurks in your head but flattens out whenever it comes near paper. He goes on to note that the Princess Bride happened like this. The green light guy at Fox liked the book. Noting that in industry, there are all sorts of executives at the studios, vice presidents in charge of this, executives in charge of that, and so on. But he said, in movies, there is but one power, that of being able to green light a picture. Each studio has a grand total of one green lighter. He notes, as I was saying, the green light guy at Fox liked the book. I was in. The problem is he was not remotely sure if it was a movie. So an odd deal was struck. They would buy the book, and I would write a screenplay, but they would not buy that unless they decided to make the movie. In other words, we each had half the pie. I wrote the screenplay. The GG guy at Fox liked it, but wasn't 100% convinced. He sent him to London to meet with Richard Lester, just coming off his considerable success with The Three Musketeers. Lester, most famous for the Beatles pictures, is a brilliant man, and after meeting Goldman, had some suggestions. He did them. Lester approved, and the green light guy at Fox liked them. Goldman says, I was home and dry. Except the green light guy got fired. Noted Goldman, here is what happens when that happens. The old GG is stripped of his appellettes and his ability to get into Morton's on Monday nights, and off he goes. Rich. He has a deal in place for when this happened, but humiliated. The new GG takes command with but one rule writ boldly in stone. Nothing had his predecessor had in motion must ever get made. Why? Say it gets made. Say it's a hit. Who gets credit? The old GG. So when the new GG, who can now get into Morton's on Mondays, has to run the gauntlet, he knows all his peers are sniggering. That a-hole, it wasn't his picture. So, the Princess Bride was buried conceivably forever. Goldman notes, so I did something of which I'm genuinely proud. I bought the book back from the studio with my own money. I think they were suspicious I had a deal or some plan. I didn't. I just didn't want some idiot destroying what I'd come to realize was the best thing I would ever write. Got another for one, one more minute? There's much more delightful stuff in this chapter, but I'm out of time, so... I would just close by noting that, in Goldman's opinion, A.R. Rusimov was, without a doubt, the most popular figure he'd ever been around on a movie set when they were filming. A.R. Rusimov is better known to you and me as Andre the Giant. Noted Goldman, he was a man with a great and good heart. Goldman says he suspected he'd grown weary of the strange way humans reacted to him. They either took to him immediately, as we all did, or they panicked. Goldman notes later that he was so sorry when Andre passed prematurely at age 46, adding that he was the most popular figure on any movie set he'd ever been on. Anyway, I purchased the book and I intend to read it. And yes, I intend to watch the movie again sometime soon. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your faithful host, Douglas Everett. And um, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you soon. The great if, all right? Yes, yes. Sorry, that. 
Enough of that. Percy, are the rocks ahead? If they are, we'll all be dead. No more rhymes now, I mean it. Anybody want to feel it? <laughs>